everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we bring back Justin Brooks from the California Innocence Project. How are you doing, Justin? I'm doing great. So tell us about your book. So I've got a new book coming out, um, UC Press. It's called uh, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And uh, the idea started when I was, was talking to a publisher about you know, the last 32 years now that I've been a criminal defense attorney and the last 23 years of running the California Innocence Project. And it's sort of a compilation of everything I've learned about why innocent people go to prison and using examples from my own casework to illustrate that it really can happen to anybody. Why did you decide to do the book now? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Maybe uh, it, it just seemed like the right time in my life. I guess I've been doing this long enough that I've got enough stories and enough uh, examples that uh, it just seemed like the right time to sit down and do it. So I've got a little stone cottage in Northern England in the Peak District, a little 240 year old stone cottage. And I just went out there and hid out for a month. And it's just this book sort of poured out of my head of, uh, and it kind of came together as an outline ultimately where I break it down into 10 categories of, of different things I've seen um, where innocent people go to prison that aren't just one-offs, but are kind of consistent throughout the criminal justice system. So what insights did you learn as you wrote this book? You know, there's stuff that I've I've known forever, like, you know, we have bad identification procedures that I've worked, you know, for decades to change and lectured about. I know that, you know, innocent people confess to crimes they didn't commit. And so I spent time on those kinds of topics, just sort of documenting them. Um, I probably spent the most time in the book thinking about writing about reading about um, how race and poverty impacts um, innocence, because it's never the direct cause that we're talking about in court, but it permeates the entire system in that, you know, poor people are more likely to be wrongfully convicted and people of color are more likely to be wrongfully convicted. And so it's more with that where you have to take a 10,000 foot view of it and look at the system as a whole and look at the statistics that really bear that out. And then there were other topics that I got into, like why we've had so many cases from the desert 
in California where people are wrongfully convicted and then how that compares up with the cases we get from the inner city, which we have tons of. And so I took a look at the concept of over-policing and under-policing and wrongful convictions in that the over-policing in the, the inner city often leads to groups of people being rounded up uh, that may not be involved at all in whatever the activity is. And the under-policing I've seen in the desert, um, for example, the Bill Richards case, where you got a guy who lives out in the middle of the desert and he calls the police in the middle of the night because he comes home and finds his wife beaten to death and the police take forever to get there and then they don't know how to process a homicide scene and then they leave the body out overnight and don't do any time of death analysis and the sort of sloppy work that I see going on outside the big cities um, and I think that's a topic that not too many people have really explored, but I've had so many of those cases that I, I always, I literally, I, a saying I've said for years is most of my cases come from Los Angeles, but most of my good cases come from the desert because that's where you see so many mistakes being made by police, by prosecutors, by defense attorneys, by judges. Um, so I think that was one of the more unique topics that, that I dug into in the book that I haven't seen anyone really write about. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because I kind of see the same uh, pattern that, you know, you're either getting people from these cities uh, where, you know, they're just, uh, okay, well, you know, if you didn't do this one, you did something else. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, you get out into these rural parts of California, as you say, and the police don't know what the heck they're doing. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. And it's and you're right with the gang evidence. It's like, as soon as you're seen as affiliated with a gang, um, jurors stop caring so much whether you did this activity or not. And, and we see these cases where you got 16, 17 year old kids who live in neighborhoods where um, if they don't associate with um, certain people in that community, it's not gonna be a safe place for them to live. And a lot of them haven't even necessarily been engaged in any what we define as gang activity in, you know, doing crimes. They are just wearing the colors of the gangs from their neighborhood. And, and then you have cases where the police just round up groups of kids off street corners and some may be engaged in dealing drugs, some might not be involved in it. So it's it's, it's interesting to look at the contrast of over-policing and under-policing, and, and it also builds into the narrative of my book, which is anybody can be wrongfully convicted. And, and one of the topics I get into on that is that I've also had now had several cases, which is the person who finds the dead body will likely be a suspect if they are in a relationship with that person and if they're not immediately, the police don't immediately find another suspect um, because husbands finding wives, wives finding husbands, boyfriends and girlfriends, uh, when they find the dead body, there's always some kind of motive that they can come up with, you know, problems in the relationship. And there's always that one friend who wants to be in the center of attention and comes forward and says, oh yeah, she told me they were having problems. That becomes the key witness. And, you know, Bill Richards is one of those cases where they could put him on the crime scene, his house. And so they're already, you know, on their way to a conviction. 
And Kimberly Long, I think, is one of the most powerful examples of that because you hear you have a middle-class white nurse um, doesn't fit in any of the stereotypes that people have about people caught up in the criminal justice system, no priors, is just living a middle-class life. And she had the unfortunate occasion that she gets in an argument with her boyfriend earlier in the day and then comes home that night and finds him beaten to death. And she ends up being the number one suspect where the police just ignored all kinds of other avenues for investigation, all kinds of other potential suspects because they could put her on the scene and they had motive. And now, you know, you're on your way to a wrongful conviction. Yeah, I think, you know, you raise an interesting point and it's something that I encounter a lot that, you know, at this point you kind of think, oh, you know, uh, wrongful convictions are kind of accepted uh, widely and they are in some spaces, but you get outside of those spaces and people are really, you know, kind of incredulous uh, about the notion that somebody could actually be wrongfully convicted. And they're like, well, you know, um, they had to have been doing something or there is this mindset that it could not necessarily happen to anyone. And yet I know people, you know, middle-class white people um, get wrongly convicted of crimes all the time, even, even those that can afford to hire pretty good attorneys. I mean, I've seen so much of it that literally in my head, I have a plan if I'm ever wrongfully convicted <laughs> and I'm a, you know, white middle-class lawyer. So, uh, you know, and I have literally in my head, okay, day one, I'm going to go out on the yard. I'm going to get the shot callers together. I'm going to tell them, look, I'll be your lawyer, your lawyer, your lawyer, your lawyer. If you keep all the rest of these dudes off me while I'm in here, uh, it, it can definitely happen to anyone. There was a white um, state trooper in Connecticut who was wrongfully convicted. And it's just, it, you know, what, there's a chapter in my book where I get into, you, you got a jury that was blinded by science. And I get into all the different supposed science-based cases where jurors were convinced that people were guilty just because an expert got up and said so. And now when we come in years later and start pulling apart the evidence, we find out that there's all kinds of flaws to that science. And so scientific evidence can convict anybody, no matter what you say, so that, you know, the, you're, there's a child who's in your care, whether you're a child or you're taking care of another child and that child ends up dead. And you say, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. And a few experts get on the stand and say, no, this baby died as a result of being shaken to death. And now we know that there's huge problems with that science and we've been freeing people. There's been people freed all around the world after bad cases like that. And, um, and yet it's still happening. And, and again, it can, that can happen to anybody, no matter who you are. When there's a dead baby and there's three experts saying, you did it, uh, you're getting convicted, regardless of how good you think your defense attorney is or how good a life you've lived up until that point. Um, it, can, it can literally happen to anybody. And, and there's not really a fail-safe for that kind of case. In fact, those cases are really tough because in a lot of instances where it's science that convicts you, there, there's not necessarily DNA to bail you out. No, absolutely. I mean, DNA is a very small portion 
of the cases that we look at. In fact, when, when I started the California Innocence Project in, in 1999, we've been using DNA in California courts since the mid 90s. And you know, we have first looked at all the cases prior to that. And I knew that, you know, that first wave of DNA cases where a lot of people were getting exonerated was going to trail off, and it did. So there were immediately hundreds of cases of exonerations with DNA from all these old rape kits and old homicide cases. But over the, you know, the last 23 years, we've freed um, 37 innocent people from prison in California, and only two really involved DNA technology. So that's not, you know, that's not going to bail you out in most cases. In most cases, it's meaningless. Uh, you know, it's just in those sort of rape murder cases that it has a lot of value. So, um, so yeah, this this notion that people aren't getting wrongfully convicted anymore because there's DNA science is it's just silly. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I know you always like to highlight your victories, but I, I'd like you to share some of your frustrating, uh, you know, setbacks, because I think that's more illustrative of what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, my office never gives up on a case. Uh, and that's hard because we have a lot of failures that go on for years and years and years. Some that ultimately become victories, like the Marilyn Malero case. But, you know, I started that case when I was 29 years old and I finished it two months ago. So it took me 27 years with a lot of failing along the way, never able to get a court to see her innocence. Um, ultimately got the governor uh, of Illinois to free her and then ultimately convinced the district attorney to dismiss charges against her. But um, we have failures all the time. I mean, we have cases that judges just aren't willing to grant hearings on. I mean, first of all, it starts with this. We look at about 2,000 cases a year, and twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, there are presentations in my office on cases. And I sit there with the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down, whether that case even moves forward. And there's a lot of those cases where I know uh, the person is probably innocent, and yet we know from just looking at the evidence, we're never going to be able to prove it. Um, and there are those kinds of cases where a kid says, you know, I was in the car, but I didn't know this guy was going to shoot this guy, um, or a potential self-defense case that the jury just didn't believe, or a drug case where a kid is in a car with another kid who has drugs, and they all get charged with possession. And the jury didn't believe that that kid didn't know that that person had drugs. I mean, there's a million reasons why a case is going to fail. And we ultimately have the burden of proving the case. Um, you know, the prosecution has the burden at trial and we have the burden in post-conviction. So to start with, we turn down thousands and thousands of cases. And then the ones we take into investigation where we think we might be able to develop the evidence along the way, the evidence doesn't pan out in the way we hoped it would. Um, the witness statements aren't good enough. The evidence isn't strong enough. And then there's the cases we file on and those thousands get down to the tens. And then it's up to, you know, can we get a judge's attention that they're gonna carve time out of their calendar to hold an evidentiary hearing on this case? And as you know, there's all kinds of politics involved in that. 
judges are elected in areas of this state. Uh, they got to run for re-election. Uh, it's going to alienate the police officers union, the prosecutors union, the correctional officers union when they take on these cases. So now we got to hope that we're going to have a judge that's going to grant us a hearing. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. Um, it happens more and more now than ever before, because I think in the last couple of decades, we've proven to California judges that we seriously look at these cases before we file on them. And if something comes from us, there is something going on with it, where it's, it's, it's a potential innocence claim. And then we get into the hearings. And the hearings <laughs> are where the, the real frustration occurs when we lose. Um, and sometimes it's we can't get the witnesses to come in to give the testimony. And sometimes it's just ultimately the judge doesn't believe it. Sometimes it's just hyper-technical reasons. Um, an example of that is, is the Joanne Parks case where you know she gets convicted of murdering her children in a house fire. And we have there's a lot of new science in the area of arson. And a lot of it establishes that she's innocent. And we were able to pull apart all the original testimony. We were able to show that the original arson investigator was totally biased. Um, we had all this great evidence, but ultimately the judge in her case said, mm, you know, I just don't think this evidence is new enough. And so if it's not what the judge is gonna deem as new science, he's gonna say, well, that was available at the time of trial and you know, the lawyers didn't present it. And so it's just not really new evidence. Uh, so even if I believe this woman could very well be innocent, I'm not gonna reverse her conviction. And that was a devastating case for us. We were very fortunate to ultimately get Joanne out of prison through the clemency process, but getting her exonerated was another matter. And, um, and that, that's also part of how you've got to um, measure success in this work. And it's something I talk to my lawyers, my students about all the time. For me, success is freeing our innocent clients from prison. But, you know, it, some of that is not satisfying. You want the person to be declared innocent. And you want them to be compensated for the time they were in prison wrongfully. And sometimes we never get there. And, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of frustrations in this work. You know, when we win a case, it's an amazing weekend. We're all excited. We take them out to dinner. We, you know, celebrate. And then on Monday morning, we start again. But when we lose and you know it's an innocent person, you know, we're, we all, are, you know, we sit in our lounge in our office. Everybody starts crying and one by one goes home. And then the next day we come and try again. But um, it's, it, it's funny because I'll often say when I'm giving presentations, what do you think is harder to represent an innocent person or a guilty person? And the general public will always say it's harder to represent a guilty person. And I said, look, I've done both in my career. I started as a criminal defense attorney. I represent a lot of guilty people. It's not hard representing guilty people. You go in, you do the best you can. You force the government to prove their case. And if they prove their case and your client gets convicted, you argue for the best sentence you can get, and then you move on to your next case. But when you're representing an innocent person, you can never put it down. You can never, you, you'll always blame yourself and think, what did I do wrong? What could I do better? Because that's not the result that should happen in our criminal justice system. 
and the result of a guilty person being convicted, well, that is how the system's set up. And so it's way, way harder. There, there's not a single defense attorney in the world who will say that it's easier to represent an innocent person than a guilty one. I want to go back uh, for a second to the Parks case um, because I'm pretty familiar with that, having read the book and then um, she was finally released. I mean, I think that's an illustration of what I was talking about earlier, where it's basically a systemic failure all the way through, right? Uh, she gets convicted based on flawed science. Um, you know, she doesn't have uh, sufficient uh, lawyering uh, at the early stages. Um, you guys take it over, uh, you present a really strong case for innocence, and the judge just doesn't buy it. And, um, and, and then you're kind of fortunate that she's able to get out the back door uh, through the clemency process. But I, I mean, that's not a, you know, no offense to your effort, but that's not a win. I mean, the system has failed all the way through there. Yeah, the system has failed. In fact, that's really what clemency is all about. When you when you go back and study it back to uh, to Britain and what was created, it's a fail safe mechanism for when the system fails, and the system completely failed. And that was our only thing left to be able to do for her was to get her out through clemency by saying to you know presenting it to Governor Newsom and saying this is wrong. What's happened here? Um, and going through the parole process is our other way of getting people out of prison. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it started with she had this biased um, fire examiner. Joanne had the unfortunate situation that this was the second house fire that she's had. Now, is it typical that people lose two houses in their lifetime? Well, actually, when I was a child, my house burned down. Uh, a neighbor actually set it on fire. Now, if, if I was unfortunate enough to have that happen to me a second time, does that make me now a suspect? Well, in Joanne's case, it did. And unfortunately, she had the same fire examiner that was from that first fire come to her house. And then he already knows that she's had this prior fire and now he's biased. And people think that experts can look at things in an unbiased way. And that's just absolutely wrong. Um, one of the studies I talk about in my book is uh, a fingerprint study that they did where they took these fingerprint examiners, five of them, and they gave them uh, fingerprints from their own prior cases where they said they were matches and they testified them being matches. And what they told them they were giving them were the fingerprints from the Madrid bombing case that was this huge news story where these fingerprint examiners wrongfully went after this guy saying it matched the fingerprints from the bombing scene. So all the examiners knew that these fingerprints weren't supposed to match. Four out of five of them came back and said, it's not a match. Even though in prior testimony with the fingerprints they'd been given, they testified they were a match. So that's the problem is this idea that experts can be unbiased is just faulty. They're all human beings who, you know, become biased. And so when you look at a fire scene and you're looking for it to be intentionally start started, you start seeing things that aren't what you would see if you were looking at it in an unbiased way. And we also have learned a tremendous amount about, uh, about fires. I, I talk about in my book about John Lentini 
and his evolution and his thinking about arson science. And this is one of these guys who's one of the leading experts in the world on arson science. And after the Oakland fire, for one example, was this massive fire in Oakland where hundreds of homes were burned. Fire examiners all went to that scene and started looking at those fires because it was a great case study for them to learn about fires that had been not intentionally start, started. And one of the things John saw was that there was crazing of the glass which is something that he testified in the past always indicated an intentionally started fire because it used an accelerant. And when the fire got hot really quickly, that caused what he thought was the crazing of the glass. And what he learned was actually that can also occur when it cools down really quickly, like when firefighters come to put out a fire. So he'd been testifying in death cases that this was indicative of an intentionally set fire. And that just little thing that he found out that one day of going to the Oakland fire just blew his mind of like, oh, we're completely wrong about this. And we've been testifying to this. And that's come, that, that, that impacted Joanne's case. That impacts all these other arson cases that we've learned how fires start and how fires burn. And that is just one example of a million examples of how forensic science evolves over the years and we learn new things. And, you know, sometimes we've already executed people. And when we learn something new, that just gives us a whole new perspective on that case. And other times they've been sitting in prison for decades like Joanne. And I guess I shouldn't have been laughing, but uh, it, it's almost comical what, what you just said. And yet, you know, this is a life or death issue for a lot of people. And I think, you know, from uh, someone like my perspective, one of my biggest concerns is really, you know, it, it's, it's understandable how these mistakes can happen. What is really troubling, I think, is how hard it is to then go back and correct the mistake, even if we figure it out. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's the story of my life. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, California had the toughest new evidence standard in the country uh, up until a few years ago when we got the law changed. In California, and I know it was the toughest one in the country because I wrote a law review article on the topic and looked at every statute in the nation. And California was the only state that had a law that said you had to completely undermine the prosecution's case with evidence that points unerringly to innocence to get somebody a conviction reversed. And what that basically told judges is, you don't ever have to do this. And short of DNA evidence, what, what is going to unerringly point to innocence? Whereas in the rest of the country, and now it's the law in California, what you need is evidence that if the jury had seen it, they wouldn't have convicted you. <laughs> which is like the logical thing that should be like if you wouldn't have been convicted if we'd known this then you should be unconvicted now um but that is not what we've been laboring under in california for a very very long time until that was changed and so a big part of my work as well has been not just mopping up because you get so frustrated with that it's been also working to change the laws and the procedures to make it easier for people to get their cases reopened and get some justice. And, and that's included, we've worked on laws of access to DNA, access to DNA testing, um, the, the new evidence standard, as I said, 
Um, we worked to change the identification procedures that are used, and we were finally able to force Los Angeles County, the largest county in the United States, to change their ID procedures, uh, even after they'd spent more than $100 million in civil suits to pay off people who are wrongfully convicted due to bad ID procedures. It took the legislature to step in and say, yeah, you guys are obviously ignoring every article every you know every vanguard article every other type of article that's on this topic because we've known now for decades that these procedures are terrible and you're still doing them so that is been that has been the frustration of my career and that i've been lucky enough that i've been able to have the resources and have built a community of people that have been able to work towards changing some of those processes but even the new evidence standard, I mean, we've seen case after case after case where the judge uh, goes, well, you know, um, the jury still could have convicted them. So we'll just, you know, leave it intact. So even though I think you're right that, uh, you know, it makes logical sense to have that as the standard rather than the extraordinarily high standard, even that's not even enough. Well, we still grant this massive amount of discretion to judges in our system who are human beings, who have their own biases. Um, the majority of them are former prosecutors. As I said earlier, we've got a political system that impacts judicial decisions. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes it's bias, sometimes it's mistake, sometimes it's downright just I'm not listening because uh, I don't care. Um, you know, we do have some great judges in California. We've had some successes, but, you know, the old bell curve of life, whether you're talking about plumbers or you're talking about judges, you have, you know, this end of people that are kind of, uh, you know, extraordinary, most of us that fall in the good to okay category, and then you have the terrible and the horrible. And we certainly have that on the bench as well. So yeah, you're right. No matter what the standards are, as long as it's still judges ultimately making the decision. I mean, it's like um, ineffective assistance of counsel, which is the first chapter of my book, because I've seen so many people go to prison because their lawyers failed to investigate their cases or litigate them properly. Ultimately, what the Supreme Court has said is you don't just have to prove that you had a bad lawyer who did a really bad job. You have to prove that it would have made a difference if you'd had a good lawyer who'd done a good job. And that, and Thurgood Marshall always spoke against that because if you think about it, the judge is now years later saying, I think this would have made a difference to the jury or I think it would not make a difference to the jury. But the judge isn't in that back room with the jury, doesn't know what those deliberations were like, don't know if maybe one less piece of evidence, one, one thing didn't come in, maybe that would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. So they're speculating as to what makes a difference. And that's why Thurgood Marshall and Brennan, you know, said, look, if you find if you find out that the lawyer did a bad job, you just get a new trial. But that's not what happens. You got to show the lawyer did a bad job. And if a good lawyer had been in there, you got to convince the judge that would have made a difference. And that second prong of Washington versus Strickland, we've lost many cases on. And it's very frustrating. So your last chapter is you are poor and or a person of color. And, um, you know, while it's true, it could happen to anyone. We also know this is America. And if you're a person of color, it's much more likely that you're going to be wrongly convicted, right? Yes. 
all the statistics bear that out. Um, when we look at the number of people who've been exonerated, it's disproportionate the number of people of color, it's disproportionate the number of people of color who go to prison. Um, and another topic within that that I explore is not necessarily the statistics looking directly at the people who are incarcerated, but looking at the impact of the race of victims on our system, which is if you kill a person who's not a person of color, you're more likely uh, to go to prison, you're more likely to get the death penalty. And that's something that we really have to wake up to. It's right in front of our face. Uh, we see it every day um, where you have the race of the victim is the most determinative factor. I mean, when you look at death penalty cases, the top two reasons you get the death penalty in the United States have nothing to do with how bad the crime was. It has to do with how good a lawyer do you have and was the victim white? Because with white victims, you get a disproportionate amount of death cases and it all starts with the media and right in the beginning with a case because we pay much more attention to cases with white victims, particularly white women. Um, there's in fact now a thing called white woman syndrome where, you know, like this woman last year who you know, disappeared in Florida, we're hearing about that in California. Those become national news stories and they disappear and then the story builds and they're covering it every day. And then now they find the dead body. That now becomes a bigger story. And now there's this big spotlight on the case. Who wants to step into that spotlight? The prosecutor. So now they get up at the press conference and say, I'm here to do justice and we're going to seek the death penalty in this case. And those cases become the ones most severely punished and most closely pursued. Whereas when people of color are killed, uh, there's much less of that. And when I lived in DC, um, and that's where I started my practice as a criminal defense attorney 30 years ago, I used to marvel that the Washington Post that was seen as one of the most progressive papers in the country, every single day, a young black man was killed in DC and every day it was in the Metro section. And whenever a white person was killed, it was in the front section of the newspaper because they'd say that's news in DC. And it's not news when a young black man gets killed. It's just another black guy getting killed in DC. And the impact that has on our criminal justice system, you know, is profound because when people care about something, it gets more attention. And then on top of that, in death cases, which I did a lot of death work for a while in Chicago, um, you do victim impact statements. And so at the sentencing phase, if you kill a homeless person, nobody shows up. But if you kill a, a bank teller or a bank executive who's maybe a white person and maybe a woman, you're gonna have a whole line of people in there testifying that this person should be executed for killing this wonderful person. And there's something really immoral about that if you think about it, that we literally are valuing life differently. It's, it's one thing to say, okay, if you kill a person, you get the death penalty. It's another thing to say, if you kill a person and a lot of people show up to testify about how great they are, then we'll give you the death penalty. And it's, it's valuing life differently. And our system literally does that. Um, so it, it's, it, this stuff is hiding in plain sight. It, it's right there in front of us how race and poverty impact the criminal justice system. And, uh, and not a lot has changed in my career with that. So in terms of the book, um, is it mostly based on your experience or did you go outside of your experience to do additional research? 
So I did a lot of research and there's a lot of global cases that are in it. And I, I talk about the, the problems that are global problems. I mean, I, I've been working in Latin America for the past couple of decades. Um, I helped start now 32 innocence organizations in Latin America from, you know, Argentina, the whole way up to the Mexican border. Um, so I have a lot of, of examples from Latin America, what's going on. I talk about Europe, I talk about Asia. Uh, I did a case in the Middle East. I talk a little about the Middle East. So I, I try to get a, a 10,000 foot view of the whole thing, but then get into my cases in a little more detail. So, uh, you know, people can really see the stories and it can resonate a little more. I, I tried not to write a law book. You know, I've written a, a, a legal textbook on wrongful convictions. This is not that. This book is something you could lie on the beach and read. Uh, I, I've written it in a way I think that's very relatable. You know, for instance, my chapter on false confessions is called, you don't like when people keep you up all night and yell at you, which is a lot of the basis of false confessions. But, um, but yeah, a lot of different stories and stories like Amanda Knox's story, which I think is very, very powerful on um, how a very bright young woman can get caught up in a false confession and end up being wrongfully convicted. And then I integrate some of the research, for instance, on the race issues of um, really what we're looking at and getting a, a realistic view of the system in, in total. So I tried to make it a balance of a very readable book that could be read by anyone, but also could be used in a criminal justice course or in a law school course. And, and finally, what do you see as the biggest hurdle right now that, that people like you face? I think the biggest hurdle is, is cooperation with prosecutors. Um, because what I've seen in the last decade is we've had a lot of exonerations with cooperative prosecutors, right? And we've had a lot of failures when they're not cooperative. And, you know, we've seen some progressive district attorneys like George Gascon elected in Los Angeles who are willing to sit down and review old work and um, fix the mistakes where they were made. And we've seen the total opposite. Um, in fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is like most things in life, there's, there's two paths you can go on, uh, as Led Zeppelin taught us years ago. And uh, it's path number one is work with the Innocence Projects, work with the defense community, and let's look at these old cases together. And where we discover people shouldn't have been wrongfully convicted, let's let them out. That's path number one. And smart prosecutors have gone down that path. And at the end of it, I sit at press conferences with them and I say, prosecutor's office, I wanna congratulate them here that you know we brought this case to them and they did the right thing. Uh, and now this person's going home. But the second path, which is very troubling, is what I've seen other prosecutors go down, which is just fight the case to the bitter end. And even if you lose in the appellate courts, you can then go back and recharge them with the crime. And then you may be able to beat a plea out of them. And we've seen that happen in a number of cases. That's what happened in Orange County with Guy Miles. Uh, Guy Miles case, we litigated for a very long time. We got his conviction reversed and they just said, yeah, we're gonna try him again. And then said, or he can plead guilty and we'll have time served. So now you're sitting in a jail with your client saying, oh, and they set a $2 million bail for him too. So now you're sitting in jail, even after he's been fully 
had his conviction reversed. He's got this massive bail. He's facing retrial. And I got to say to him, look, you got two options, man. Like, I'll take this back to trial, but you're going to be in here for at least six months awaiting trial. And I can't guarantee you we're going to win the retrial. I believe we will because you're innocent and the evidence shows that, but I can't guarantee it. I mean, a jury convicted you once of this. They might do it again. That does happen. Or you can walk out of here today. You'll have a conviction and you'll just plead guilty to the charges. And what a guy do? That's what he did. Um, and that's what, you know, that's a sensible choice. And so it just troubles me that prosecutors have realized that. And, and, you know, and the same thing, we found that out in San Bernardino under the last DA, you know, his strategy was litigate everything. So in the Bill Richards case, we first had to litigate to get access to the evidence room. Then we had to litigate whether DNA was a valid science. <laughs> then we had to litigate you know, the habeas hearing, and then we win that, and then they take it up to the Court of Appeal, and then they take it to the Supreme Court, and we litigated that case, yeah, for 15 years, and then when we, but we then once we get his conviction reversed, they said, oh, we're retrying, and then we file a, you know, prosecutorial misconduct uh, <laughs> motion with the court saying this is a vindictive prosecution after all this litigation, and then they decided to drop it and let him out, so that's the, the biggest challenge is getting cooperation and the interesting thing is what i found in latin america is it's much easier to do that because a little offshoot of the class system in latin america is the lawyers all went to college together and high school together and they're all part of the same little clubs and the same thing in britain they all kind of talk to each other and it's a part of the class system but and there's a lot of negative things to that but one of the positive things is Defense attorneys and prosecutors talk to each other and don't see each other as the enemy. And so when I do presentations in Latin America, I'll look at the audience and all prosecutors there, defense attorneys there, correctional officers there. In the United States, you never see that. It's either a defense training or a prosecutor training. And you're trained in law school that, you know, that's the enemy and you're going to fight to the bitter end. And we got to turn that around. I keep waiting for this book to come out. When does it come out? So it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Uh, and again, called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent by Justin Brooks. And now it says that the release date will be in April. Hopefully it'll come out a little more before that. But if you order it today, you'll get it shipped to you as soon as it's available. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Justin, for joining us. It is my pleasure as always. Keep up this the good work. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.